You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Good morning and happy Father's Day. If this is a day that honors you because you're a father and you have kids that you've invested your life into, I want to just say a huge thank you. Thank you for being there for kids. And and many of you may have a day today to appreciate your own father, depending on your own life story and background and situation. And, And some of us may have some challenges when it comes to dads. Wherever you may be, I know that God's love is there for you, that God sees you and wants you to thrive. And so if you are a father and you are following the way of Jesus, a huge, huge thank you for modeling the goodness and love and grace of our Heavenly Father. And so today on Father's Day, we step right into it. We're going to step into a book that was uh, written in a lot of ways to proclaim the goodness of God the Father through God the Son and the power of the Spirit. We call that the book of Acts. And so this series is called Unstoppable because nothing can stop a love like that. And we're looking at the kingdom of God in the book of Acts in particular. We've been all the way from Jesus ascending into the heavenly realm, all the way through to the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Today, we're going to be moving forward and we're going to be talking about a story in Acts chapter 9 that is all about um, who we would come to know as the Apostle Paul. What I want to do to set this up is I want to talk about the power of names. In fact, I believe there's a power in a name in all kinds of different ways. Names evoke identity. Names evoke identity. And there's a lot of different ways we could talk about this. One way that's always pertinent to me, and I may have shared this with some of you in the past, but for me, this has been really clear. There is a huge difference to to my own identity and, and not negatively or positively, just there's a nuance that comes out when someone close to me in the family calls me Curtis to when someone who is a, a friend, knows me in the world or whatever, is um, addressing me as Kurt. Both of those names are very important to me, but I remember that there was a season when I was just Curtis. I was just Curtis, actually, until fifth grade. And as a young kid trying to figure out my own identity, I had always thought it would be really cool if people called me Kurt. I like that name. It sounds like me. And I'd always hoped someone would do that. And it had never really caught on. And I was kind of self-conscious. I didn't want to like be like, hey, just call me Kurt. I'm now Kurt. I'm this new person. Because, you know, at that age, kids are cruel. And every little thing you do can set you up for being made fun of and whatever. So so I was kind of nervous. But on the first day of fifth grade, Mrs. Davison, um, she looks at her role. She looks up and says, is Curtis here? And she looks and sees that it's me. And she says, I bet you like being called Kurt. You're a Kurt, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I like that. And from that day forward, I was Kurt. That was all there was to it. 
My family mostly started calling me Kurt, except for, you know, in moments where they don't. And it's not, well, sometimes I think when I was younger, maybe Curtis, right? Or um, now it's often my wife, Lauren, she'll call me Curtis kind of in a cute flirty way, right? Or, or some family member will call me Curtis to remind me of who I am in sort of a, a familial sense. So, so there's times when people call me Curtis, it doesn't offend me. I don't mind it at all, but I remember the transformation that took place when Mrs. Davidson said, you are Kurt. You know, there's another story like this in the Bible. I remember the story of um, Peter. Peter is called Simon and Jesus says, well, I like you as Simon, but I want you to also know that I see you as Peter, which is a name like Rock or Rocky, right? It, it had a very uh, significant sort of uh, meaning for Peter and the way Jesus saw Peter. Simon dash Peter becomes how we refer to him. And now we kind of just know him as Peter and we remember, oh yeah, he's also Simon because that's his birth name. It's really interesting too when we think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul will often be noted for having this radical shift as well. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the power of a name today and want to notice, I want to notice a lot of things. But where we are in Acts, so here's what you need to know. Um, so far, we've seen someone named Saul, who we'll come to find out is also called Paul. Saul is in agreement, as we looked at last time, is in agreement with the death of Stephen. He's there holding coats for people who are throwing rocks. I mean, this is something he's good with. He's actually traveling to places and saying, I'm going to round up all these Jesus followers. They are not true Jews. That, that's his mission. He is a Pharisee, he is young, he is zealous, and he is ready to step in and say, you can't contaminate what God has been doing to purify Israel. He's ready to see Israel purified because he is tired of Roman oppressors taking their boot and putting it on the backs of his people. And so, this is the posture that Saul who I'm almost said Paul, right? This is the posture of Saul. I want to step right into the story today because there's a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to read a pretty significant chunk of the passage. And then we're going to start just getting a little playful today with this idea of the power of a name. So just follow me, if you will, this morning. So this is what it says in Acts chapter 9. This is where it starts in verse 1. We're going to read a big chunk at the beginning and a big chunk at the end. So let's read this together and maybe we'll highlight some stuff along the way. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, right, Christianity, we might say today, the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So if we were to stop there and just kind of notice something, uh, Saul is like, look, high priest, um, you like me and you like what I'm doing. I need something that authorizes me to go to any of the synagogues in the Damascus area. Damascus is a, a walk outside of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a little bit of a trek. And, and he's like, when I get there, I need to have authorization to round people up to make sure they know they cannot do this. They cannot be followers of this way. It's going to ruin Israel. 
And so he gets the authorization and he, he starts to travel. And verse three gets us that far. It says, during the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Some translations put it, why are you persecuting me? I want to stop here. Notice the power of a name already. Jesus refers to this man as Saul and decides to kind of let him know, hey, I see you, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Verse five says, and Saul asked, who are you, Lord? And now, of course, so we're, we're kind of, it's ambiguous in the Greek. So to pause here, Lord can mean sir, master, or kind of a word for like Lord, like in this divine sense. Uh, Caesar is often called the Lord of the world. Obviously, we believe Jesus is the Lord of the world. So it has this king sort of identity wrapped in it. And so we're not exactly sure if he's just saying, hey, uh, who are you, sir? Like in a polite way as he's trembling, or if he actually believes this is like the Lord in some way, but it's some sort of person who's higher than him. And so he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. <laughs> Verse six, now get up and enter the city. You will, be you will be told what you must do. Clear enough? Go do this thing. And you're going to get the instructions along the way. Just go. I, now, now, if I'd been sent to harass people with paperwork and all of a sudden the voice of Jesus says, Saul, Saul, or Kurt, Kurt, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like, what's your deal? Do you realize that when you do this, you are harassing me? I mean, there is nothing inside of me that does not listen to that voice. I will certainly just go and do what I'm told at that point. Verse seven says, those traveling with him stood there speechless, they heard the voice, but saw no one. So, so Paul, it seems, gets this vision and they just hear it all. So they're hearing it and Paul actually sees and hears and thus we'll find out what happened. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but could not see. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days, he was blind and neither ate nor drank. Okay, anything, sorry, misstep. Neither ate nor drank anything. So we're gonna stop the story there. Of course, he's gonna meet another uh, believer who's gonna have this vision and this believer is gonna come and bring vision to Paul or Saul. <laughs> See, I keep mixing up the names here. And, and that's gonna be a big catalytic moment. And once that has happened, Saul's gonna start moving in all kinds of ways. Verse 21. Everyone who heard him was baffled. In other words, Saul now is preaching about Jesus immediately upon becoming uh, no longer visually impaired in that moment. They questioned each other. Isn't he the one who was wreaking havoc among those in Jerusalem who called on this name? Notice name here, right? So this is Jesus. Hadn't he come here to take those same people as prisoners to the chief priests? 
But Saul grew stronger and stronger. He confused the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. After this had gone on for some time, the Jews hatched up a plot to kill Saul. However, he found out about their scheme. They were keeping watch at the city gates around the clock so they could assassinate him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the city wall. I want to stop right here for a second. There's a couple of things. So, so number one is, so Saul has had this radical transformation and says, I was wrong. I'm going to tell everyone in Damascus the opposite of what my letters authorized me to do. Instead of harassing you, I want to tell you that I came to harass you and I can't do that anymore. The name of Jesus is the name that is compelling me for this transformation. I am a different person. I am someone new. It also kind of has something in there that I want to make sure that we're understanding. Sometimes it'll the New Testament will say like the Jews, for instance. And I, I want to make something clear here. Uh, it, it certainly can't mean all Jews because Saul is Jewish. Saul is a Jew, a Jew himself, right? And all of the believers at this point are Jews for the most part. And so, so it's clear to us that it's not every Jewish person in the uh, first century that this is referring to. It's particular Jews connected with particular synagogues, right? So, so just to put that in the context, because it's going to matter in a little bit. So I just want to make sure we're naming that, that there's not the, the Jews and the Christians. It's not how it really works. There's Jewish followers of Jesus, and there's Jewish followers of Torah only, and, you know, and that's okay. That's just the way the world is divided up at that point in the storyline. So verse 26, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, so now he's gone from Damascus and now he's coming to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was really a disciple. Then Barnabas thought, uh, brought Saul to the apostles and told them the story about how Saul saw the Lord on the way and that the Lord had spoken to Saul. So here's the deal. Someone defends him. So someone Saul would a day ago, well, not a day ago, a few weeks ago, would have been ready to see executed, jailed, harassed. Someone like Barnabas is now defending the very person who would have called for his death, his condemnation, his punishment. It should be mind-boggling to us. And, and there's no reason we should expect the disciples before getting some real raw testimony of this transformation. They, of course they're afraid. Like, I would be afraid. It just makes perfect sense. And yet, things change with Jesus. Continuing on. He also told them about the confidence with which Saul had preached in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Notice naming again. After this, Saul moved freely among the disciples in Jerusalem and was speaking with confidence in the name of the Lord. He got into debates with the Greek-speaking Jews as well. But, you know, they tried to kill him. When the family of believers learned about this, they escorted him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is where he's from. Verse 31. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria, that's a big pocket of land that in modern day we would say is both Israel and Palestine, right? In that area, they enjoyed a time of peace, of shalom, of wholeness, of safety, of goodness, of mutual togetherness, of peace. God strengthened the church and its life was marked by reverence for the Lord. Encouraged by the Holy Spirit, the church continued to grow in numbers. This is a story that has fascinated humankind since the first century. And it's a story that should really fascinate us. And sometimes it's used poorly. We're going to talk about some of the ways I think it's used poorly. But if we just look at the life of someone who is on their way to be murderous in intent, has had this radical shift, and now is loving the very people he sought to imprison and hopefully kill. This is a powerful story. Stories like this, stories of transformation, they're powerful. There's no doubt about it. You have your own story about your own journey with God and your own journey with Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, I have my own story. And this isn't about whose story is more significant, whose story is more powerful. You know, it's not the old churchy thing that I experienced when I was young. Oh, I wish my life story back there would have been bad so that when I tell my testimony, which I don't always use that word anymore, but when I tell my story about how Jesus changed my life, I can talk about it was so bad and now it's so good. Well, as inspiring as those stories are, they're not normative, but here we see something that is in that kind of frame. It was good yet bad over here, and now it's good yet probably bad in another way, because what we'll find out about the life of Saul, Saul's going to suffer. Saul's not going to have an easy go just because of Jesus. In fact, it's going to get harder and harder for him, and we'll talk about why a little bit today and throughout this series. I want to talk about Jesus. In Jesus' name. Have you ever ended a prayer in Jesus' name? Of course you have. I do it all the time. Because we believe and teach and live out a life that is centered around the name of Jesus. Now, this idea of naming in the ancient world, of course, was very significant. I can remember here in modern times, you know, both of my girls tried to come up with names for them. And we wanted biblical names. So we ended up with Lydia and Chloe, both characters in the New Testament that came alongside the work of Paul and some interesting or significant way. And we we know in our culture how much baby names are, are just a big deal. Now, in the ancient world, often the idea of names could be much more than that. They could be like, like when you say my name, you're evoking this whole story. You're evoking this identity. You know, for me, I know Kurt or Curtis sometimes means courteous, you know? And I've always thought, oh, well, I try to be a courteous person because my name is Curtis. But really, there's not a whole lot more to it than that. But in this day and age, when the New Testament is coming together on the ground in real time, names were significant in a different kind of way. And so they wanted you to know throughout the Gospels, throughout Acts, throughout the entire New Testament storyline, all of which borrows and points backwards to the Hebrew Bible, 
they want you to know that Jesus's name is the superior name above all names. We sometimes talk about the name above all names, right? And, and this is a big deal because declaring a name of someone, declaring a kingly name especially, this had huge ramifications for whose domain you've just stepped in. And the early Jesus people said, we want to be all about Jesus and his business. Well, that's great. Now, now Jesus' name is helpful for then bridging us towards the name I really want to focus on. And that's Saul's name. Let's talk about this for a minute. So, so Saul's story is very fascinating because he goes from being anti-Christian, and I'm going to use that in air quotes because no one's really called Christians in a proper sense, like universally, like we think of Christian during this time. There's some people who use that label in Antioch we read about a week ago or a couple weeks ago. But for the most part, um, it's not like these are Jewish people who then convert to Christianity. It's these are Jewish people who decide, oh, the hopes of Judaism are being fulfilled because the Messiah we've been waiting for is actually here. And that Jewish Messiah, that's Jesus. And so they don't denounce being Jewish. They're Jewish people who believe the Messiah has actually arrived. The hope of the world has actually arrived. And their role in all of this story is to now go announce this reality to the world to say, hey, everyone on the outside, everyone who's not Jewish, you now have an invitation to be with us. You now have an invitation to come into the family of God. You didn't know you could, but you, you can. And the way you do that is by accepting that the Messiah has built that bridge on your behalf through his loving life, his radical teaching, his execution by the Roman Empire, his victorious resurrection over all evil death and powers, including the powers of earth. And now he is ascending and sitting on the throne of the universe. And so, so it was Jewish people who were following Jesus and inviting non-Jewish people to join them in that. So when we think of two religions, someone like Saul would say, this is not a new religion. This is just simply the extension of the religious devotion I've always had for the God of Israel. That's all that was. But for so many people throughout history, this has been a radical thing that somehow Saul has now forsaken all things Jewish and now is just simply this new thing called a Christian. And unfortunately, especially in the West, what this is often meant uh, over time is that thing we call Christian becomes way less Jewish over time. And over time, the, the New Testament gets kind of whitewashed and becomes this document that really just is for white Westerners. The truth of the matter is that's not even Oh, that's not even nearly possible with what we have in the New Testament. The New Testament is the product of a Middle Eastern culture. People with brown skin who are proclaiming a Messiah has invaded human history. And that anyone, black, brown, white, any other ethnicity you might want to represent with color, that they are all welcome at the table. So why does Saul's name play into any of this? What, what are we even going to do here? Well, I'm going to have some fun with you today, and I'm going to suggest something. There's this rumor in Christianity that Saul's name is going to be changed to Paul. And it's understandable. You read the letters of Paul, and it's, it's never said. He never is called Saul in any of those letters. 
And we're gonna talk about that for a little bit because I think it's significant to ask the question, is it Saul or Paul or both? And my friends, I want to invite you to consider that calling Paul, only Paul, that when we really try and say that he had a radical name change, we're also saying he had a radical conversion out of his ethnic Jewish identity and became something more Western feeling, that when we accidentally do that with our categories, we're missing out on the radical nature of what the book of Acts says about Saul slash Paul and his name and the identity that each of those names evokes. You wanna jump in it? Cause I kinda do, let's do this, okay? So, so here's the deal. Saul is still called Saul. Saul is called Saul by Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So if we were really concerned about this radical transformation and brand new religion, brand new idea, we would expect Jesus to come in and say, oh, Saul, <clears throat> I mean, excuse me, Paul, Paul, right? But he just says, Saul, Saul, that's it. And in fact, throughout the book of Acts, there's 11 more moments throughout the book of Acts where Saul will be casually just referred to as Saul. That's just fine. And there's no mention anywhere in the New Testament of a name change. And there is one moment in Acts in a few chapters down the road that we'll notice that I think does help us understand why there's some confusion around this. And you're still wondering, why do you care? We're going to get there, I promise. Okay, so check this out. In Acts chapter 13, Saul slash Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent out to non-Jewish nations to proclaim the name of Jesus. And he goes on these missionary journeys is what they're often called in the book of Acts. And this is going to be a significant moment because something is going to shift. If you see in Acts chapter 13, um, in verse two, Saul is called Saul and there's no qualification. He's been following Jesus for a significant amount of time by now, right? So it's not as though he's like, you know, been at this Jesus thing for a long time and they forgot, oh, I mean, he's Paul. Don't, don't call him Saul anymore. That's not a good idea. He, you don't want him to get confused with those Jewish Torah people. I mean, he's thoroughly Jewish. He's thoroughly a Torah person. In verse nine, it says, Saul, who was also called Paul, and refers to him as someone who's full of the spirit. <laughs> so, so if you were going to talk about like the radical change of identity, like if you were going to talk about this sort of thing where um, Saul is now Paul and you can't really do anything about it, um, this is where you would hope that moment would be. But in fact, you don't get that. In fact, what you get is that Saul, sometimes they call him Paul. Okay. And then in verse 13 of the same chapter, uses the name Paul without qualification, just like earlier in the chapter, you Saul without qualification, as they sail out to proclaim God's good news to non-Jewish people groups. I think you're going to start catching on really quickly with why this is. As a rule of thumb, at least in Acts, Paul is Paul with Gentiles. Paul is Saul with Jewish people. And this matters. So when Paul is with non-Jewish people, they call him Paul. When Paul is primarily with Jewish people, it's brother Saul. And this matters. Here's why. There is a power of names in the midst of empire that matters very much. Have you ever mispronounced a name that was from someone of a different culture or ethnicity than your own. I have done this many times. 
I wish I didn't do this. It's something that bothers me, but it is hard to imagine being that well-versed in various cultures. But here's the invitation. If you don't know how to say someone's name, maybe the invitation is to step into relationships so that you do know. I know that when I've had that problem, I try and memorize, okay, you say it this way, you say it this way, right? And, and, and the power of names matters, right? Because we want to name people what they ought to be named. And in the middle of the empire, this matters in a huge way, as we're going to see. So Saul, this is his Hebrew or Aramaic name, right? And we're using these categories a little loose. I'm not going to break it all down. Hebrew is different than Aramaic. Um, Greek, as you'll see, is different than Latin. Okay, but here, here's basically the easiest way to think about this. His Hebrew Aramaic name is Saul. Saul was his Hebrew Aramaic name. It's the name he most easily recognized and the one that spoke deeply of his Jewish identity. This Jewish teacher took joy in being from the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe from whom emerged the king he was named after, King Saul. Okay, so, so he is Saul. Nothing changes. But then he has this other name, Paul, which is his Greek name, Paulos, right? And he also has a Roman version of it, Paulus probably, which is the Latin. He chose a close equivalent to his Jewish name from the known Greco-Roman names of the time. Maybe you've heard of people who immigrate to America and upon moving here, change their name slightly or even radically so that they fit and people can pronounce them. Yeah, and there's something that makes sense about that functionally and I wouldn't judge someone for doing that as they navigate imperial realities like America, but at the same time, there's something that should grieve us that, that they have to adapt to the majority rather than bring their unique identity, even in their name, with them. Paul or Saul understood this reality and navigated the world with two different names. So Paul, let's talk about the Roman citizen for just a moment. Paul's name and privilege. In Acts 16 and Acts 22, what we're going to find is that this apostle, Saul slash Paul, is a Roman citizen. We don't know how he got his Roman citizenship, and certainly he wasn't born a citizen. It's possible that these are gifted to people, uh, often that aren't Romans. There's a lot of different ways that people could become Roman citizens, but if you weren't natural born, you're still second class as a Roman citizen, but you're still considered a citizen, right? So, so Paul has to navigate, and he has the privilege and we're going to see him utilize his privilege in Acts 16 and 22 when he calls out evil that's being done against him in the Roman system. So he uses his Roman citizenship in wise ways to help the cause of Jesus as a marginalized person. But Paul, we should identify with the Roman citizen Paul who happens to be Jewish. But then there's this side of him, the marginalized Jewish Paul. We actually call him Saul. Saul's name as an outcast label. When the name Saul would be used in Roman context, it would sound so foreign, so out of place, so different 
that it would turn heads. It would sound to arrogant Roman citizens as less than. It would bring up for them an identity of people who are barbaric, who are slaves, who have been conquered by the Roman Empire and its military machine. And so a name like that identified Saul as a marginalized person within the world of the Roman Empire. He is privileged when he's Paul. He is marginalized when he is Saul. And somehow he is one of those few Jewish people that gets to hold double identities together like this. Here's where I want us to close. There are a lot of people who are navigating dual identities just like Paul, just like Saul. There are people among us today who are not part of the majority culture of U.S. people who don't look like me, don't look like some of you, who have different colors skin, different cultural realities that make them who they are. And in a world like that, in a world like that, we have to ask the question, are we going to be the kind of people who truly embrace and include and invite other cultures, other people to come to the table, to be part of the table, to shape the way the table is even run? Or are we going to say, well, you need to change your name that I can't understand or I can't relate to, to John or to Jill? It just doesn't sound like Jesus to me. It doesn't sound like Jesus, the marginalized, crucified Jew who, who came not to live in the power of Rome, but came in the sheltering sort of humble presence of Bethlehem in a stable. That Jesus models for us that the marginalized people of this world matter, that black lives matter that the lives of persons of color in this country must matter, that they are not other, they are all of us together. We deserve to build a better world together. And this is probably when I think of names and I think of identity and I think of navigating an empire, I don't know what it's like to have my name or my identity or my culture called into question on a regular basis, whether it's literally a name or it's a body that looks different than my body looks. I don't know what that's like, but here's what I do know that there are names and identities attached to those names of people who live in fear, who live in pain, who live in shame, and they are beautiful image bearers of God, and we've got to do better. We've got to do better. One of the things I love about the say her name conversation or movement hashtag or say their name approach to people of color, especially the black folks who have died at the hands of brutality, whether it be police brutality or the racist structures and systems that give birth to bigots that think they have the power and authority to end a life of an image bearer of God, dearly beloved by Jesus. It's, it's those people that have died that when their name is evoked, it feels a lot like Jesus saying the name of Mary. 
It feels a lot like brother Saul in the midst of his own Jewish people being affirmed as Saul and not needing to bend his identity to be Paul, not have to bend his identity to be something other. But of course, Paul made that choice and I don't blame him for that. And in fact, I think it was what he needed to do to put, to put the gospel forward. But you can see in all of this as people try and navigate the dynamics of multiple cultures in one situation under the power of a structure that hurts people and oppresses people and silences people and shames people and shuts people out and makes outcasts and incasts. And I don't even know if incast is a word, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. In that kind of dynamic, both in the first century and in the 21st century, the people of Jesus have to do better. We have to be the kind of people who call out others by name, who honor them, not just because the name in and of itself matters, but it's the full identity that the name evokes that matters. And so as we close our time together, as we think about the life of the Apostle Paul, someone who, as Saul, is Jewish, is a Torah teacher, has this whole cultural identity, and who often we're tempted to turn into some other person named Paul. And when I say that, I'm being a bit facetious, just simply saying, Paul isn't this white guy with the beard who taught us all these rules to follow. He's the same person who is Saul, the Torah teacher, who finds Jesus. And, and we need all of him. We need all of the identity of people who find themselves in the margins of empire. So friends, I want to close with this short recollection of some of the names that need to be named who have died and we need to continue to move forward into a world where our default is to call people out by name where we are the kind of people who say the identity of each image bearer, that is what we want to cultivate in our human sisters and brothers in such a time as this. May we say their names. Mm -hmm.